should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull****. It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome to it. Thanks for joining us. It's the Michelle Miao Show. And yes, I'm Michelle Miao. <laughs> it's Tuesday today. So that means John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us. Hello, Michelle. Always looking so fresh, so clean, and so cute. I was going to say I'm not Michelle, but then it would sound like I'm saying you're not those things. Oh, such a conundrum. I apologize. I'm pre-apologizing for any jokes I might make. It's all good. All good. We're here on the Progressive Voices Network. Also, we post our video show up at CommonwealthClub.org. And uh, by the way, thank you so much for those who tuned in yesterday. I got some sweet emails, um, and that was really nice. So thank you. Where would they send those emails? (laughs) If you head to MichelleMeow.com, I give you my social security number, my underwear size, my bra size. <laughs> useless information. Really. Useless, useless. Yeah, let us know how we're doing and how you like the show. You know, uh, I'm, I'm very, very uh, communicative. I like to talk to people, so I will email you back. And true, folks. At least she for now. Won't, she won't shut up. So. <laughs> I know. I send John and Dennis, like, I don't know, 100 emails every night. Um, so, John, uh, in the news today, I wanted to bring this up to you, but there is a man in Huntington Beach that wants all gay people dead. That's not good. It's, so where are you going with this? <laughs> I don't know if we're going to be here tomorrow. This guy in Orange County, uh, just a lawyer, right? Um, you know, he <laughs> he comes with the, up with this idea of the Sodomite Suppression Act. Oh, yes. I have so you heard, heard of this, this story. This, gen- this constitutional genius. Yes. Uh, I, I pulled up the article right here on the computer, but he submitted a ballot initiative with the State Department of Justice, paid his $200. And basically calls for the death of anyone who engages in sodomy in the state, in California. So, Which is not just <laughs> gays and lesbians. I mean, that's going to be a large portion. of. I mean, it, he basically wants the state to himself. <laughs> you know, I can't help but laugh. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. His name is Matt McLaughlin, uh, McLaughlin by the way. And he, he lists his address and everything on there. I, I mean, you know, uh, Huntington Beach, though. I thought everybody there is just really laid back and chill. You've got the beautiful beach. Maybe that's what's got him so upset. (laughs) Anyone who's happy or having fun, he's got to stop it. No, uh, you know, in all honesty, I mean, I think of when I think of California, I can't help but think, you know, how lucky we are to live in a state like California uh, with the majority of the people, you know, progressive and uh, especially in Northern California. So I looked out the window today. I was working from home and. Super excited that the view from home is the the bridge. The people that I connect with are amazing, educated people. I can't even imagine if my neighbor knocked on my door and said, hey, sign this ballot initiative or, you know, trying to petition for signatures for such a ballot. 
This is someone who's probably, we're going to see them in the news. You know, they're heading off to Syria to fight with ISIS or something. I mean, <laughs> they're outnumbered. <laughs> we got 200 bucks out of them to help fund the state government. That's how I look at it. Oh, my gosh. That $200. I, I think about what I could do with $200. There, you know, I, I could buy a bunch of hamburgers from McDonald's and feed you know, an army. People have to know you're hungry right now, so we're going to have a lot of food illusions. <laughs> I normally call Tuesdays Taco Tuesdays with John, but he never brings me tacos. That's, that's 200 hamburgers. Wait, that's 375 tacos. <laughs> Wait a minute. How many bottles or uh, bowls of rum can I have for that? Anyway, all right, let's get started with today's show. I think it's going to be a, a great, awesome show. I'm so excited for our guest. Today's program is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Also, it's tax season, and the deadline is, oh, my gosh, coming up because we're already in March. So April 15th, you have to – or is it, is it the 15th? It's usually the 15th, April 15th. Right? <laughs> have you done your taxes? I have. I got that done. Uh, a, a while ago, I had to be on time this time. Very good. <laughs> Give no reasons for the IRS to come knocking on the door. Um, but anyway, if you still need to do your taxes, please consider doing it with H&R Block because for each new client referral, San Francisco Pride gets $20 and it's Pride season. Uh, so, you know, Pride is very important to us. It's time that the LGBTQ community can celebrate and commemorate our community. Um, I also wanted to say I'm turning 33 next Monday, March 9th. Wow. I'm giving out my birthday. That's right. So I'm asking for anyone who wants to wish me a happy birthday, you can make a $33 donation to San Francisco Pride or become a member of Commonwealth Club. <laughs> 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 I give love where uh, love is needed. Okay. So on June 24th, 1973, speaking of Pride season, a fire broke out at a gay bar, the Upstairs Lounge in New Orleans. It killed 32 people, and to this day, it's considered the deadliest fire in New Orleans history and also can be considered a gay massacre. And while the police and the fire department uh, did their investigations, and uh, my understanding after reading a good majority of the book last night, <laughs> in a few hours, that they actually, you know, had somebody. They, they knew that it, you know, was arson. Um, the, the outcome of the entire case is what we need to learn from. The response from the city, uh, even religious leaders, and also, you know, the homophobia uh, during that time is something that we absolutely need to remind ourselves of because it, it can apply to even today. Uh, our guest today is the author of the upstairs. Uh, I'm sorry, the author of the upstairs lounge arson, uh, a biography detailing accounts of what happened. So I'm very excited to hear from him today. Let's welcome Clayton Delary Edwards to the show. Clayton, thanks for being with us. Well, thank you for having me. So let's get started. Um, let's start where the book starts because I think the historical context is important for people who don't know about this. And I, I have to, be, you know. I'm ashamed that I actually didn't know about this until I caught the article last night, but the fire broke out in the summer of 1973. So if we think about, you know, just a couple years before that or a few years before that, it was an extremely tumultuous time in, in America, period, right? What was it like in New Orleans specifically and especially for the LGBTQ community? In, uh, New Orleans in the um, in the middle part of the 20th century had a reputation for being a pretty relaxed, pretty tolerant place for gay people, um, but that wasn't a very high standard. Um, in the years before Stonewall, uh, 
it was it was very common throughout the country for police to swoop into gay bars and uh, or lesbian bars and arrest people for no other crime except for being in those bars. Um, that tended not to happen as much in New Orleans, so it certainly did happen. Uh, in some places, and um, you know, other books like um, The Gay Metropolis or Stonewall um, uh, document things. You, you could be arrested for shaking a man's hand when you were introduced to him because that was seen as police would interpret that as being the, uh, the preface to a proposition or something like that. Ah, you know, obscene contact. Let's arrest these guys and everybody else who's in this bar while we're at it. Uh, New Orleans was a little bit more relaxed than that, um, in part because the French Quarter, which is where most of the gay bars were uh, and still are, uh, even then had a reputation for being <clears throat> kind of a, an openly tolerated red light district. Um, so, and, and partially, uh, and I think this is kind of ironic, I think there wasn't a whole lot of organized gay leadership at the time, and so it was easy for city leaders, for the most part, to just overlook what, what the queers were doing in the French Quarter. Um, and so um, so that's kind of the background um, of, of, of that time. It was comparatively re relaxed for the period, but certainly, you know, wasn't nearly the homosexuality wasn't didn't have nearly the level of social acceptance that it does in most major cities today. Sure, Clayton. So tell us then what did happen on on the twenty fourth of June in nineteen seventy three. So give our well listeners. the uh, the upstairs lounge as the as the name suggests was on the second floor of a building, mm -hmm. um, and the main bar area was accessed through a very narrow stairwell that opened onto a dark side street. Um, and on the 24th of June, someone uh, it intentionally poured some cigarette lighter fluid on the lower steps, um, which were carpeted, and they lit the fire, and, and they lit the lighter fluid, and the fire started collecting in the stairwell, um, and the stairwell was tall and narrow, and it functioned basically as a chimney flue. Um, at the top of that flight of stairs, um, there was a doorway that opened into the upstairs lounge. And when, uh, when someone opened the door, all this accumulated um, smoke and flame and flammable gas got a new, a new source of oxygen, and it basically just shot a firebomb into the room. Um, there, was, there, were, there were two fire exits. Um, one was positioned in a corner, and for most people who were in the bar, in order to get to that fire exit, they would have had to run directly into the flame, uh, which obviously no one wanted to do. Um, there was another one that was hidden in a back room that was used as a theater. Um, and the bartender, a man named Buddy Rasmussen, um, had training in fire prevention, actually, and he kept his head. And when, when the flame burst into the room, he shouted, come with me. And he walked through the bar, and as he passed each person, he would touch them on the shoulder and say, come with me, come with me. And he led about 20 people to safety through that, that um, fire exit in the theater. 
Uh, unfortunately, there were uh, a lot of other people in there who were drunk, who panicked, uh, who didn't l- hear him, who didn't listen to him. And they started running to the windows and trying to get out that way. The bar actually had a lot of very large windows, but because the the windows were so large, as a safety feature, someone had installed horizontal bars across the openings to keep someone from accidentally falling out of the window onto the street. And at the crucial moment, the safety feature wound up trapping people. And so within a few minutes, um, 29 people died. Uh, in the bar itself, and um, 15 were brought to the hospital with um, fire injuries, and three more later died there. We're speaking with Clayton Delery Edwards, and he is the author of uh, the uh, Upstairs Lounge Arson. We're talking about one of the deadliest fires in New Orleans that um, killed over 30 people in a gay bar in 1973. Um, Clayton, you know, that day when the fire broke out, I mean, like so much was happening. I think in the book you talked about even premonitions. I mean, people had a bad feeling. It was an extremely hot day, and therefore, you know, people wanted to go to a nice air-conditioned place. The beer bus was going on. Um, you know, tell us the specifics before the actual fire, because I think that that's um, interesting, especially about the two people who, you know, were troublemakers and and which led to, you know, being one of the um, suspects of the fire, uh, of starting yeah. the fire. Um, yes, uh, a number of people did have premonitions. Um, uh, there was a, a, a drag performer named Marcy Marcel who was supposed to perform that night, and she uh, she gave me an interview um, shortly before she died a couple of years ago. But um, she woke up with just a bad feeling, and she didn't want to go. And several other people are on record as having said before the fire, um, something bad is going to happen. Um, and and uh, one of the one of the people who had a premonition was a man named Bill Larson. He was pastor of the New Orleans chapter of the Metropolitan Community Church, um, and. There were a lot of MCC members in the bar that day. They used to have Sunday services and then go hang out at the bar together, um, in part because the upstairs used to host MCC services, and in part uh, because the, the, the upstairs would sometimes hold benefits for the MCC, and there was one that day. Um, as he was having um, an early supper before going to the bar, um, Bill Larson, a uh, 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 a man who was with Bill Larson, a man named uh, Rick Everett, looked at, at Bill Larson and said, something bad is going to happen to you. And Bill Larson said, I know it. Uh-huh. Um, but they finished their dinner and went to the bar. Um, that day, um, there was a man named Roger Nunez. He is the principal suspect of in the fire. Um, he was a sometimes uh, patron of the upstairs. Uh, He seems to have had a reputation for being kind of a difficult personality there. He's also reported to have been um, a hustler. And uh, that day, if you read, read the testimony that various people gave the police, it seems what was happening was that um, Roger Nunez was um, in a neighboring bar and He had found a trick, but another hustler stole the trick, and it put Roger in a bad mood. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, he he sat in that other bar drinking and drinking, and then he went into the upstairs lounge. Um, 
Phyllis Steve and Buddy Rasmussen, um, Phyllis Steve owned the bar and Buddy was the head bartender and he was the person who led people to safety. Phil and Buddy had a reputation for trying to keep the bar um, pretty much above board. Um, yeah, free, they free not, of tricking and, and hustling. Free of, well, you know, if, if two people met and they wanted to go home together, that was fine. But what they didn't want was a bunch of hustlers soliciting tricks on the premises. Um, and or they didn't want people dealing drugs on the premises, or they didn't want tea room sex on the premises. Um, and uh, Roger Nunez um, was in the bathroom that night, sitting in a stall, making obscene comments to some to people as they used the stall next door. Um, nobody really says exactly what he was saying. I'm guessing he was soliciting a trick. Um, he finally annoyed someone enough to so that uh, so that he was reported to the management. And um, when he did that, um, Buddy and the other bartender on duty just just made him leave the bathroom. But what he did was he went over and started harassing the man who had reported him, a man named Michael Scarborough. So um, Michael Scarborough stood up and punched him and knocked him to the floor. Um, and um, and bef- and then Roger was thrown out of the bar. Uh, but before he was thrown out, he mumbled something, and witnesses later reported that what he mumbled was, I'm going to burn you all out. Um, Clayton, we're, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll continue that conversation. What a great uh, spot to break, because now we're all interested. You know who actually really did this and what was the outcome of it, and how did the New Orleans community respond to this tragic fire? So you'll stay with us. Okay. The Michelle Meow Show continues, so don't go away. listening to the progressive voices network streaming the best in progressive talk 24 7 keep the progressive conversation going on on facebook like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices on the progressive voices facebook page we update the stories that our hosts like tom hartman stephanie miller bill press and leslie marshall will be talking about during their shows and we share great news commentaries opinion pieces and videos from all over the progressive world always progressive always on be part of the progressive conversation like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Weatherford BMW is where I spend a lot of my time. I love what I do and I love the people I work with, but work's not the only thing I love. I love the everyday simple things in life, like mornings at my favorite coffee shop, taking walks with my dogs around Point Isabel, and spoiling my partner for a scenic but thrilling ride. That's the beauty of living the Bay Area dream. We're just being ourselves, living our authentic life. Live your authentic life, a special message by Weatherford BMW. 
Last year, we did not get you your billion back. We got you your billions back. So many billions, we started thinking, this isn't tax season, this is refund season. And nobody gets more of your money back than Block. Guaranteed. Get your billions back, America! And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. Today on the phone with us, we have the author of the Upstairs Lounge Arson, uh, Clayton Delery Edwards, and we're having a discussion about a fire that broke out at a gay bar in 1973 that killed over 30 people and is considered one of the deadliest fire in New Orleans history. So, uh, Clayton, you've described what happened that day in 1973. Uh, was Nunez guilty? Uh he was never arrested, uh, and um, the case is circumstantial. I cannot say beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was. Uh, I do say that the evidence points in his direction. Um, and also, uh, he, about 17 months after the fire, he committed suicide, and he did not leave a note. So the reason why he killed himself has to be you know, forever a matter of speculation. But in that 17-month period, he did tell several people that he had set the fire. Uh, He was usually drunk when he made the confession, and then when he sobered up and people asked him about it, he would say, oh, me? Me do that? I'd never do such a thing. You know, that kind of thing. So the question is, when was he telling the truth? Was he telling the truth when he was sober, or was he telling the truth when he was drunk? Do you think the police would have gotten... Um, a conviction or gotten a, an arrest even if they had pursued the case more? I'm getting, obviously, I'm asking, did they do a real investigation? There were actually two investigations, one conducted by the police and one conducted by the arson investigation unit of the uh, state fire marshal. The police investigated pretty thoroughly for about three weeks after the fire and then very suddenly dropped the case and dropped it at a time when they had just learned from a survivor of the fire that Roger Nunez had said, I'm going to burn you all out. Um, so it seems a very odd time to drop a case. Mm-hmm. Um, I tried contacting the two investigators. One of them is still alive. He uh, said that he would give me a phone interview And then on the day and time that we had set it up, I phoned, and he didn't answer, and I left a voicemail message, and he didn't return it, and I left a couple of more, and he didn't return those. Um, Let's just say the the record of the police investigation left me with a lot of questions. So Um, the the police didn't feel that they, you know, they wanted to conclude the investigation, or let's just say that they didn't do a good job, uh, at least from someone who, you know, looked in or read a little bit of the the book. But the response from the rest of the New Orleans community, the religious community, um, the fire department, I mean... It was pretty appalling. Right. Yeah. Let's Um, get into that. Yeah. Um... The, the upstairs is sometimes reported as a hate crime, and it wasn't in the standard sense that someone who was out to get a bunch of gays set the fire. Um, 
the, if, if Roger Nunes was in fact guilty, it seems to have been a combination of internalized homophobia and a stupid prank gone horribly wrong. That said, uh, the homophobia that was revealed in the fire came from city leaders, both elected officials and church leaders. Um, there had been two um, two other fire incidents in New Orleans in the within the preceding year. Um, one, uh, there was a fire in an office building called the Rault Center, and it killed six people. And then there was an arson sniping incident in the Howard Johnson's Hotel that killed ten people. Um, a few months before the upstairs fire. On both those occasions, the mayor, the governor, the archbishop, you know, they, they, they couldn't do enough. They were making public pro- proclamations. They were issuing press statements. They were holding press conferences. They were sitting in front of any news camera that would film them, talking about the sympathy for the victims, talking about how all New Orleanians should, should mourn the loss of life. Uh, then a few months later, the upstairs lounge fire happened, and it's worth noting that the final death toll for the upstairs lounge was double that of the other two incidents combined, and there was dead silence. Um, the mayor did not make any statement for uh, 17 days after the fire, and when he finally did, he said something to the effect of, well, guess we ought to address those fire codes. Disgusting. Um, you know, um, the archbishop, who had put himself front and center for the other uh, inc- uh, incidents, did not make a press statement, would not issue one. Uh, he was called repeatedly um, by several gay activists who had come to town to supply the leadership that the city wasn't providing. Um, and he refused to even come to the phone. There were reports that I was not able to conclusively verify, but reports that he um, forbade any of the priests in the archdiocese um, from giving Catholic burial services to the victims. You know, with, with the, the the extent of this, uh, the number of dead, um, I, I have to admit I was like Michelle. I had not known about this until this was brought to my attention just this week. So why, why do people not know about this fire, but they do know about Stonewall? They do know about some other things. Um, good question. Um, for which I have several partial explanations, but uh, but no nothing very conclusive. I, th- I think what happened was Stonewall. The um, Stonewall was basically a moment of gay victory. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the the punks and the drag queens fought against the police and had them you know running for cover and and screaming for help. Um, and and around that moment of victory, it was very easy to organize some gay rights movements. Um, Whereas uh, the upstairs lounge fire was a moment of tragic loss, and it did inspire some gay activism um, in the short term, um, but ultimately it took several more years for gay activism in New Orleans to take take root, and that largely seems to have happened around the time of the Anita Bryant controversy in 1977, um, when, as fate would have it, she had already. Been, she was scheduled to sing at a concert in New Orleans the week after she won the ballot initiative in Dade, Dade County, um, and people were mad. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think that was mainly it. Is that it was it was harder to build a sustained gay activism around this incredible tragedy, some of which 
And some of the effects of that were to send people deeper into the closet because it was so clear that there was no support from the mayor, there was no support from the governor, there was no support from the major uh, officials in Catholicism right. or the Episcopal Church and, you know, the, the, the two mainline um, religions in New Orleans. So, so when you were talking with folks in, in the preparation of this book, um, how reliable do you think memories are after three decades, four, what is it, four decades? 40, four, yeah, about 41 years. Yeah. 41 years, uh, pretty pretty reliable for the most part. I was fortunate in that um, the police investigation and the fire marshal investigation both left hundreds of, and hundreds of documents mm-hmm. behind. Um, and so I was, a lot of times I was able, when somebody gave me a version of a story, I was able to confirm it or disprove it based on results from the investigation. Um, the uh, the reports of the archbishop uh, forbidding burial. I you know I don't know that there was a direct order. Mm-hmm. I do know that some. I was able to confirm that some members of some of the victims were not allowed to have Catholic burial. Um, though it's hard to tell whether that was the archbishop or the individual priest who made that call. Um, the uh, the archbishop was still alive at the time I started research, and I contacted his office. Uh, and gave him a chance to give me his version of events, which I promised to print word for word, and I got no response. Clayton, I have one last question for you, and unfortunately, sure. we have to let you go. Uh, I wish you know we could talk all day about the book. It's so fascinating um, in terms of other things or other accounts uh, and other interviews that you've done in the book. So, uh, my last question to you is: er- earlier, when I introduced you, I said that it, I think that it's very important for us to remember. You know, tragedy like this because of the response from the community and the homophobia that existed even 41 years ago is homophobia that I still uh, believe that I know still exists today. And even though, um, you know, the uh, people are more accepting socially of LGBTQ people, I feel like that homophobia, uh, homophobia still exists. What, what are your thoughts? Oh, absolutely. Um Absolutely. You you were talking at the top of the show about the uh, the proposed bill in California to execute gays. You know, I think that's a rather extreme example. Um, a less extreme example, I think, would be um, all the bills, you know, with marriage equality moving forward, all the bills we're seeing passed in places like Texas or South Carolina or, or, or Wyoming where they're basically going to enshrine LG, uh, discrimination discrimination against gays into their state law legal systems. Um, the, uh, the don't say gay bills that you hear about sometimes where legislators will make a point of passing a law that's designed to prevent teachers from acknowledging the existence of homosexuality in the classroom. Um, one of the things that made it the, the upstairs fire so easy for leaders to sweep under the rug was that in 1973, it was a topic that really wasn't addressed in polite company. Um, and, uh, and, and some people would like to pass laws that bring us back there. So right. yes, absolutely. I think uh, one of the important things about the book is it helps warn us against complacency. Exactly. Clayton, thank you so much for joining us here on the show and for sharing the book with us. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. It's been delightful. 
Pick up a copy of the out, uh, the Upstairs Lounge Arson today. It's on Amazon.com. You don't need the Kindle app, by the way. So, And also, you know, by paperback, of course, is available. I do think that you should pick it up, not because it's a part of our history, but also the, the book itself. I mean, what a great account of uh, something that happened over 41 years ago. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Weatherford BMW is where I spend a lot of my time. I love what I do and I love the people I work with. But work's not the only thing I love. I love the everyday simple things in life, like mornings at my favorite coffee shop, taking walks with my dogs around Point Isabel, and spoiling my partner for a scenic but thrilling ride. That's the beauty of living the Bay Area dream. We're just being ourselves, living our authentic life. Live your authentic life. A special message by Weatherford BMW. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. Our next guest is on the phone. He is the author of a new book, Love Together, Longtime Male Couples on Healthy Intimacy and Communication, which sounds extremely positive. I always think that it's great when we have incredible role models, especially those of uh, same-sex love relationships in this day and age when people talk so much about, I don't know, things like Grindr and uh, the horrible things that come out from those apps, which it can be good, but it can be bad. So here with us to talk about his new book is Tim Clausen. Tim, welcome to the show. Hi, Michelle. Uh, Thanks for having me on today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for writing to us and uh, letting us know about this this great book that you have. So the book, you know, has a a bunch of in-depth interviews with longtime male couples from across the entire country, right? Right. And what would you say, you know, the, uh, let's start with maybe, I'm I'm sure all the couples are your favorite, (laughs) but maybe start with a story that, uh, you know, jumped out for you. Um, really, you're, you're right. Uh, you know, I did 102 interviews and, uh, would have loved to include them all in the book. The book would have weighed probably 50 pounds. So it was really a matter of choosing, narrowing it down to uh, just under two dozen, which was really tough. It was very tough because there's so much good material in there. Um, the interviewees uh, in the book have been together anywhere between 10 and 65 years. 
Uh, most of them were in the, the mainland United States, uh, two Canadian couples, one Costa Rican couple. And yes, very hard to pick a favorite, but uh, <laughs> um, certainly, certainly, I think one of the many lot of highlights in the book, certainly, but the, the last couple uh, in the book is a, uh, Eric and Eugene, a remarkable Buddhist couple from Portland, Oregon. Uh, Eric is a Buddhist teacher. He spent 10 uh, years of his formative years at Gethsemane Monastery in Kentucky and uh, ended up um, leaving the monastery and meeting Eugene in Chicago in the 1950s, and they fell in love and ended up relocating to, to Portland. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were together uh, just shy of 60 years, actually, at the time that I wow. interviewed them both. Yeah, quite amazing. And both, you know, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant men. Um, soon after their uh, 60th anniversary, I, you know, I've adopted a number of these couples, and I keep in touch with them, you know, by telephone. And, and Eric, particularly, we talk usually once or twice a week. He's just such a cool person. Um, uh Soon after their 60th anniversary, actually just before Christmas, um, a year or two or three ago, time flies actually, but um, they went to Washington State to marry because uh, Eugene actually was in congestive heart failure at that point and they wanted to marry you know, while they could. So they went to um, Washington to marry. It wasn't yet legal in Oregon at that time and got married. And then um, uh, soon after, uh, Eugene actually did pass away. And the last uh, chapter in the book is a really extraordinary three-part interview. I got to interview Eric um, about 10 days after, about a month after, and about six months after on what is it like to lose a partner of 60 years. And uh, some really amazing, you know, deep uh, insights and and sharing uh, that he provides. And the book really kind of ends on that note. Not, you know, and it's not necessarily just a big downer either, but it's really it's some of the most insightful reading I've ever read into grief and, and what is it like to lose a partner. And certainly in the gay world, you know, we don't hear a ton necessarily about longtime partners. Mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, for, for couples to share in this book as freely and openly as they have about their experience dealing with all the big topics in relationship, right. you know, intimacy, communication, um, conflict, spirituality, children, marriage, all that kind of stuff. Uh, the sharing is is really quite uh, quite remarkable. It is an interesting time right now, you know, for the LGBTQ community when it comes to pop culture and the media. I mean, you have celebrities like Neil Patrick Harris, uh, you know, who are very open about he himself being in a committed relationship and having children. Uh, but, you know, prior to having these positive images of gay male couples um, and a book like yours, a lot, a lot of people, I feel like, fell into that trap of stereotypes of what gay relationships are and what they're like. You know, do you, do, what do you think? What do you think are some of those stereotypes? Because I, I always hear, you know, two men get together, it's, it's all about sex. Right, right. That is the, that is the stereotype, and, and I think... Um, Eric, the, the uh, Buddhist teacher in the Portland couple, talks about actually in his one of the interviews uh, with him about you know that uh, you know gay people have been lied to for centuries. You know, in, in civilization, we've been taught that you know we are only sexual beings. We are not capable of love. We are not capable of being loved. God hates us. You know, all this sort of really horrible stuff. And and really, it's only up until recently. And, and that was one of the reasons I wanted to get the book out there was, hey, 
you know, it's wonderful to have, and I'm grateful for Elton and Neil Patrick and so forth being open in the media, but, uh, you know, we really need, like, in-depth examples of longtime couples sharing, like, hey, this is how our relationship works for us, and if it works for us, it can work for you, too. So, so the whole point is this is kind of a helpful and inspiring resource, particularly for young singles who, who you know, think, oh, my God, you know, I'm, I'm relegated to a, a life of meaningless uh, hookups and, and nothing more. That's not the case at all. So right. I think the, the stereotypes, thankfully, you know, are certainly fading um, uh, these days. There's a huge change going on in America and in the world uh, regarding same-sex love and couples and marriage, and that's great. It's wonderful. Michelle Miao, we're speaking with author Tim Clausen on his new book, which uh, features, uh, he said, over 100 interviews of long-term couples, gay couples. And, you know, and I love this topic, actually. And I wanted to ask you, of all the couples that you interviewed, and and you obviously learned a whole lot about gay relationships and same-sex relationships, especially long-term, I would guess that without, you know, having read the book, that all of these stories are very similar to even heterosexual couples? Um, yeah, there's definitely a lot of parallels. And uh, I've had, you know, straight people reading the book and, and, you know, saying that they loved it and really learned a lot, too. There's a lot, certainly, that is universal um, in, in any couple, I think, regardless of gender and, and so on. But there's definitely a lot that's different in, in gay couples. And I've as I've talked about before and other interviews um, and so forth. Um, here in Milwaukee, which is a much more backward place than San Francisco, um, in many ways, uh, you know, to, you know, for a, for a, a guy and a young guy and his girlfriend to walk hand in hand down Wisconsin Avenue, you know, one of the big main thoroughfares downtown, they do that regularly and never think twice about it. And uh, it's just you know, part of things and, and they're accepted and that's how it is. But if you have a male couple, holding hands, walking down the street, you know, that's an invitation for all kinds of really bad stuff because, you know, our society still is not so educated. So I think uh, things are much more open today and for younger gay men uh, meeting and, and forming relationships, they just kind of assume, hey, you know, we'll get married, we'll have kids, we'll, we'll kind of do the whole thing, whereas for uh, the further you go back in history, you know, uh, gay men and, and gay women, gay men, I think, to a larger extent, have been much more marginalized and really kind of had to hide their love and hide their relationships and, and experience a lot more, you know, prejudice and, and um, you know, negativity from, from an un, unenlightened civilization. Right, know, right. In the midst of. So, Tim, can I speak candidly with you? I mean, I know yeah, that there are a lot of members of the LGBTQ community who who uh, listen to the show, um, and you know, for me, I feel like for a lot of my gay friends, gay male friends who talk openly to me about their relationships, I almost feel like because of of the oppression that we had faced before getting all of this progress this you know equality that we're experiencing today at lightning speed we've been hurt so much emotionally by society by our peers our friends our family and even in relationships that it's really affected our ability to to you know connect in a healthy way and maintain healthy relationships which is why i would think that young younger people I put that in air quotes, um, who may not have experienced a good, healthy, long-term relationship like the couples featured in your book, have a tough time uh, finding someone and settling. Uh, what are your feelings about that? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's we still have a 
long, long ways to go as a culture to to the place where I'm hoping we get to where being gay is a non-issue because it should be, you know, it should be a non-issue. But yeah, I mean, all of us have been burdened with, you know, huge amounts of, of homophobia from our culture, from our family, you know, for me growing up, I mean, the, the worst thing you could possibly be growing up in, in school and in gym class, you know, all the guys are like, hey, fag, and, you know, this kind of thing. So, so to grow up and find, you know, oh my God, you know, I'm actually one of those people and how do I deal with this, you know? So there's, there's a lot, lot, lot to process and I think we definitely have a, a tougher time. Um, and, and I think uh, for gay people to, to create and, and sustain healthy long-term relationships is, is, uh, is extraordinary and beautiful. And, and uh, we have to work so much harder on it than, than straight couples who never have to examine or think much about their identity and, and uh, their self-worth and all these things really factor in. Tim, we're running out. Go ahead. No, just, uh, you know, one thing I wanted to add. I also, I wrote the book because um, my own success uh, rate in, the, in long-time male couples, has, you know, hasn't been so spectacular thus far, so I wanted to learn more about how do couples do it. Uh-huh. I certainly learned a lot, you know, learned a lot uh, in, that, in that arena. Um, and I think, uh, you know, but the key is just to, to um, work at it, and, you know, counseling can be really helpful. Um, you know, all those kind of things are, are really helpful in, in finding health and wholeness, which can be tough. Last question for you. We're running out of time, and I wish yeah. that uh, we had more time, but uh, maybe we'll we'll have you back on to read <laughs> a couple stories because I just think these are th- this is great. We need more books like this um, to give positive role models of long-term relationships to right. our community, back to our community. Um, but, you know, marriage equality, we're waiting for the Supreme Court to, to make a decision on the final case of marriage equality. So we more than likely, I'm, I'm positive that we'll see marriage equality here in all 50 states and it'll start to feel like, you know, being gay is okay or right. will it? I mean, do you think that that will impact how, you know, gay relationships are and, and, uh, and, and kind of normalize it? If you will, I do. Yeah, I think it definitely will help. And I'm cautiously optimistic, like uh, like everyone, that that the Supreme Court's going to do the right thing. But yeah, that definitely that can only be helpful um, for everybody, and also just in educating the non-gay people too. Like, you know, we're full human beings too, and you know, it's you need to recognize that. You know. Hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Tim Clausen, everyone, he's the author of Love Together, Longtime Male Couples on Healthy Intimacy and Communication. I definitely urge and recommend this book to uh, members of the LGBTQI community or even if you're, you know, a parent of gay couples or, or a gay son or a gay daughter. Or I think it'll help everyone understand a little bit more. Um, so pick it up if you can. The Michelle Miao Show continues right after this. Don't go away. Jax and I, maybe we'll discuss our own relationships. <laughs> She's smiling. She's smiling. Don't go away.
Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. Weatherford BMW is where I spend a lot of my time. I love what I do, and I love the people I work with. But work's not the only thing I love. I love the everyday simple things in life, like mornings at my favorite coffee shop, taking walks with my dogs around Point Isabel, and spoiling my partner for a scenic but thrilling ride. That's the beauty of living the Bay Area dream. We're just being ourselves, living our authentic life. Live your authentic life, a special message by Weatherford BMW. Swirl is your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. Originating from the gay epicenter of the universe. Inclusive of everyone in our community. There's no way. Visit Swirlcast.com for interviews, news, entertainment, and fun. That's Swirlcast.com. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side as a unified team of the best fertility specialists Guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Wow, what a a show. I mean, I, I knew that obviously we all know the devastation in Nepal, the earthquake, and how it's affected people, lots of people in Nepal. Um, you know, the the talk of earthquake, it scares me in a lot of ways and why I think that we all really need to help Nepal, especially those who've been impacted to a higher degree, like a marginalized group that is inclusive of the LGBTQI community. You heard from Sunil um, how this can be a, a lot more difficult for a transgender person or as in Nepal, they know they identify as a third gender because they don't have the proper documentation to even say, this is who I am, or this is the property I own that's now devastated and I need resources, you know, to rebuild. Imagine that happening in the state of California in which we know from reports that there is a, a big earthquake looming in California sometime in the future. All right, Jax? Forever looming. Yeah. Well, it's going to, I mean, you know, it's nature. It's, it's something that we anticipate. We know it's going to happen. But it brings me back to, sure, America might be looked at as if we are so advanced, right? But when we look at the bureaucratic process of uh, even for a transgender person to uh, identify themselves um, through, you know, some type of authentic way, and I put that in air quotes, you know, going to the DMV and doing that whole process. Well, what if you're transgender, or you're young, you're underage, 
and you don't have the proper identification and you're separated from your family, that can happen here in California, like tomorrow. Right now. Like right right now. <laughs> um, so I urge you, please, you know, find a way to help those out in Nepal uh, if you can. And, uh, and again, we'll post that information up at uh, michellemeow.com. And then our second half of the show, we address uh, male relationships, gay male relationships, long-term relationships. And, you know, in uh, Tim's book, it was very specific to gay men or uh, of same-sex couples, and we didn't really talk about lesbian women. Um, but I think, you know, lesbian relationships are also extremely complex, and it's okay to, to be, you know, honest about that. What do you think, Jax? Yeah, I think uh, that's what my straight friends are always asking, is that, oh, it's got to be so emotional to women uh, in a long-term relationship. And I'll tell them anecdotes or stories, and they're like, well, that is just what's happening in my relationship. Mm-hmm. So I think it's all the same, and that's what we're trying to explain to people. But as a young person, do you? Do you, I don't think that you, as a young person, I'm, I, f- I feel like I'm being so ages. <laughs> I'm being ages with you. Um, for a 22 year old, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't think that you feel that your future is bleak, or that you have a negative um, perception of being in a lesbian relationship, right? No, no, I don't. As far as uh, I can picture a long-term relationship, and I think I eventually will be in one extremely long-term. Moving in with your girlfriend? Ah. (laughs) (laughs) I said eventually? Eventually, eventually. That's a healthy way to go. I mean, the the whole stereotype, the joke of lesbians getting in that U-Haul truck right away, there's some truth to it, and I can't say that that has always been a positive thing for lesbian couples um you know i think i think the hardest thing about being in a relationship with another woman to me you know would just kind of be okay since the show is for lgbtqi people i'll just come out and say it but you know there are cycles uh that happen there are things (laughs) that happen to a woman and she may feel a, a specific way you know during this cycle so when you put that together in one household, it can feel a little overwhelming. When it's happening at the same time. You, when, it ha- when it's happening at the same time. Or if it's not, because then you're on different cycles and, and you have to deal with the other person. And then the following week, you're, de- <laughs> you're dealing Either with yourself. Sad. There's no... Right. And so it gets a little intense. I would say that you know those types of things are, are difficult. But then... It cross cancels with the uh, the comfort in the you feel with this person that you feel absolutely connected to, and because they're a woman, you don't have to say it; they already know. I think there's a level of understanding in that you know how they feel that a straight couple. I don't think they would really experience that. You can explain something to someone so much, but unless they've experienced it themselves, there's no way they'll really, truly understand. Right. And here's the other thing I will be honest with you. I mean, when you look at like uh, my partner and I and we're in our 30s and so, you know, we're both uh, working professionals. um, There's this very... Man, we just feel so tired because as two women, we go out there in the universe, in the world, and go do our thing, right, in the professional world. And it's so difficult to be that woman in the professional world. So when you come home, you're just really exhausted. 
So it, it's not even about like you know it, it being in a lesbian relationship, but the fact that like we're two females and we're treated differently outside our home uh, by men, by corporations, by people. I think that gets exhausting, and that contributes to kind of how you are at home. But at least you, when you vent to each other, you can just go on and on and rage <laughs> on and on against. And then it becomes like a super meeting for feminists yes. united. Every dinner. <laughs> Every dinner, that's right. That's who we'll be. We'll revolutionize the, uh, the gender issue here in America. Um, you know, going back to like male uh, gay men and relationships, I mean, I have a gay brother. I have many gay friends, obviously, and, and uh, they're part of the community. And I do recognize, you know, how young gay men feel about relationships in their community. And I'm so thankful for Tim's book because I think that it will give a lot of those people who are very critical and cynical regarding relationships in the gay community, give them some hope and some positivity that you can be with one guy for 60 years. Look at this couple. That we are capable of monogamy. That's one of the stereotypes of, you know, gay men um, and relationships. But I also feel like there's this chapter in a gay man's uh, life. And I don't, I don't think that age has anything to do with it. Like age it r- truly is like almost just a number <laughs> with gay men. Um, and I think that, you know, there's, I look at it like they don't get older, but they go through different, you know, parts of their, their book or their journey. And in the beginning, uh, the coming out process and all that, I, I don't know. I just listen to my brother a lot and I feel like there are a lot of men in the community who just don't really know what they want for a really long time. <laughs> I think people can relate to that, though. Everybody, right? Everyone. So, which is why this book, it, you know, it's important to a lot of people. Um, you know, I thought I did really good in talking about lesbian relationships without personalizing it, without giving away any secrets. Without giving away, <laughs> I know you need to give some secrets up. What's uh, what's difficult about dating for you? Difficult about dating. Uh, dating is difficult. I think uh, that's a hard one because I would think my girlfriend might be listening. No, but um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, obviously, you're dating her or you're with her, um, and I, and I don't know if you guys have any anything specific to your your relationship that you might find is unique because you're both lesbians, um, but also you know the only unique problem we have that maybe straight couples don't have is that I can't take her home to meet my parents. And if I go home, I'm not going to talk to her and be on the phone with her. And she's, then she wants attention that I can't give to her if I'm home for a week. That's tough. But the other only thing we fight about is exes. And I think a lot of people can relate that's to that. A, that's a common fight with lesbians. No, for real. Because as lesbians, <laughs> as women, right, we want to befriend all of our exes. We want to invite them to dinner. And it's like our current f- girlfriend, well, wife, is like, no, that does, who, who invites your, the ex <laughs> to dinner at our home? Um, one thing I'll say here, I'll give you a secret-ish, uh, but in our household, um, you know, I, I come off as if I'm the butch, but I don't like to get my hands dirty. 
So <laughs> that's a problem in our household because she calls it a facade. <laughs> Okay, now the show. The show's up, no more secrets. So if you have stories of your own, relationship stories of the LGBTQI community, share them with us. Head to michellemeow.com. Again, we'll post information on how to donate to Nepal uh, up at the website michellemeow.com. We'll be back tomorrow at the same time, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. We'll see you then. Have a good one.